Chapter Number Five of Fairylands of the South Seas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. Chapter Five: A Memory of Mauki. We sighted Mauki at dawn. The cabin lamp was still burning when the boy brought my coffee. I drank it, lit a cigarette, and went on deck in a peru. The skipper himself was at the wheel. Half a dozen men were in the shrouds. The native passengers were sitting forward, cross-legged, in little groups, munching ship biscuit and gazing ahead for the expected land. The day broke wild and gray, with clouds scuttling low over the sea, in squalls of rain. Since we had left Magina the day before, it had blown heavily from the southeast. A big sea was running, but in spite of sixty tons of copra, the schooner was reeling off the knots in racing style running almost free, with the winds well aft of the beam, rising interminably in the back of each passing sea, and taking the following slope with a swoop and a rush. We had no log. It was difficult to guess our position. Within a dozen miles, the low driving clouds surrounding us like a curtain made it impossible to see more than a few hundred yards. Until an observation could be obtained, the landfall was a matter of luck and guesswork. Our course had been laid almost due north-northeast, to pass a little to the west of Mayuki, which gave us the chance of rising Mialto or Aitu if we missed the first island. But ocean currents are uncertain things, and with a horizon limited to less than half a mile, nothing would be easier than to slip past the trio of low islands and into the stretch of lonely ocean beyond. Every trading skipper is accustomed to face such situations. One can only maintain a sharp lookout and hold on one's course until there is an opportunity to use a sextant, or until it becomes obvious that the land has been passed. A squall of rain drove down on us for five minutes while we shivered and the scuppers ran fresh water. Our narrow circle of vision was blotted out. Then suddenly, with the effect of a curtain drawn aside, the clouds broke to the east, flooding the sea with light. A shout went up, close ahead, and to starboard, so near that we could see the white breakers on the reef, was Mauki, densely wooded to the water's edge, a palm-top rising here and there above the thick bush of iron woods. Next moment the curtain descended. Gray clouds and rearing seas surrounded us. It was as though we had seen a vision of the land, unreal as the blue lakes seen at midday on the desert. But the skipper was shouting orders in harsh magnion. The schooner was swinging up into the wind. The blocks were clicking and purring as half a dozen boys swayed on the main sheet. Presently the land took vague form through the mist of squalls. We were skirting the reef obliquely, drawing nearer the breakers as the settlement came in view. A narrow boat passage, into which an ugly surf was breaching, had been blasted through the hard coral of the reef. A path led up the sloping land beyond, between a double row of canoe-houses, to the bush. A few people were gathering by the canoe-houses. It was evident that we had just been sighted, and that it would be some time before a boat could be put out, if, indeed, the boatmen were willing to risk the surf. Meanwhile, we could only stand off and on until they came out to us, for the skipper had no intention of risking his ship's boat 
and the lives of his men on such a forbidding shore. Aurori, he sang out, dwelling long on the last syllable of this Cook Island version of Hard Aloe. The schooner rounded into the wind with a ponderous deliberation calculated to make the nerves of a fair-weather sailor twitch. She seemed to hesitate, like a fat and fluttering grandmother. At last, after an age of bobbing and ducking into the head seas, while boom-tackles were made fast and headsails backed, she made up her mind and filled away on the port tack. Riley, the American coconut planter, who was recruiting labor for the season on his island, turned to me with a wink. If this old hooker was mine, he remarked in a voice meant to reach the skipper's ears, I'd start the engine every time I came about. She can't sail fast enough to keep steerage way. The skipper sniffed a British sniff. They are old friends. If this damn fine schooner was yours, he observed, without turning his head, she'd have been piling up long ago, like as not in broad daylight on an island a thousand feet high. Riley chuckled. Too early for an argument, he said. Let's go below and have a drink. I have not often run across a more interesting man than Riley. Thrown together, as he and I have been in circumstances which make for an unusual exchange of confidence, I have learned more of him in two months than one knows of many an old acquaintance at home. At thirty-five years of age, he is a living object lesson for those who bewail the old days of adventure and romance, and wish that their lives had been cast in other times. His blood is undiluted Irish. He has the humor, the imagination, the quick sympathy of the race, without the Irish heritage of instability. Born in South Boston, and reared with only the sketchiest of educations, he set out to make his way in the world at an age when most boys are playing marbles, and looking forward with dread to the study of algebra. For fifteen years he wandered, gathering a varied background of experience. He worked in mills, he drifted west and shipped his cabin boy on vessels plying the Great Lakes. He drifted further west to become a rider of the range. Finally he reached San Francisco, and took to the sea. He has been a sealer, an Alaska fisherman, an able-bodied seaman on square riggers sailing strange seas. He has seen Cape Horn and the Cape of Good Hope. He speaks of the ports of India, China, Africa, the Java Sea, as you would speak of Boston or New York. In the days when a line of schooners ran from San Francisco to Tahiti, touching at the Marescas on the way, he felt a call to the South Seas, and shipped for a round trip before the mast. When he returned to San Francisco, a change seemed to have come over him. The old wandering life had lost its charm, had gone flat and stale. Like many another, he had eaten of the wild plantain, unaware. The evenings of carousal ashore no longer tempted him. Even the long afternoons of reading, for reading has always been this curious fellow's chief delight, stretched on his bed in a sailor's boarding-house, had lost their flavor. The print blurred before his eyes, and in its place he saw islands of savage loveliness, rising from a warm blue sea, shadowy and mysterious valleys, strewn with the relics of a forgotten race. The dark eyes of a girl in Toihai. Remember that Riley was both a sailor and an Irishman, a rough idealist, keenly susceptible to beauty and the sense of romance. 
It is stated that the men who live romance are seldom aware of it. This may be true, though I doubt it. Certainly in Riley's case the theory does not work out. He is the most modest of men, untainted by a hint of egoism in his stories, superbly told with the Irish gift for circumstantial detail and dramatic effect. The teller's part is always small, and yet, as one listens, thrilled by the color and artistry of the tale, one is all the while aware that this man appraises his memories at their full value, reviews them with a ripened gusto, and ever-fresh appreciation. In short, he is one of those fortunate or unfortunate men for whom realities, as most of us know them, do not exist. Men whose eyes are incapable of seeing drab or gray, who find mystery and fresh beauty in what we call the commonplace. It is scarcely necessary to say that Riley was aboard the next schooner bound south for the islands. Nukuheva knew him for a time, but the gloom and tragedy of that land, together with an episode of domestic infidelity, were overpowering to a man of his temperament. From the Marquesi he went to Tahiti, and his wanderings ended in the Cook Group, six hundred miles to the west. Perhaps the finding of his journey's end wrought the change. Perhaps it was due to his rather practical Tahitian wife. In any case, the wanderer ceased to rove. The spendthrift began to save and plan. In the groups to the eastward he had picked up a smattering of coconut lore, was not long before he got a berth as superintendent of a small plantation. With a native wife and the Irishman's knack for language, he soon mastered the dialect of his group. He is one of a very few men who speak it with all the finer shadings. This accounts in part for his success with labor, the chief difficulty of the planter throughout Polynesia. To one interested as I am in the variations of this oceanic tongue, it is a genuine pleasure to talk with Riley. In school he learned to read and write. Beyond that he is entirely self-educated. A good half of his earnings, I should say, in the days when he followed the sea, were spent on books. A native intelligence enabled him to criticize and select. He has read enormously, and what he has read he has remembered. Each time a new subject attracted him, he hastened to the bookshops in San Francisco or Liverpool or Singapore, and gathered a little forecastle library of reference. Like most intelligent men in this part of the world, he has grown interested in the subject of Polynesian research. It is odd to hear him discuss, with strong accent of South Boston, and the manner of a professor of etymology, some question of Mori chronology, or the variations in a causative prefix. Once he made clear to me a matter often referred to in print, but which I had never properly understood. He was speaking of the language of Tahiti. When you hear a Tahitian talk, he said, it sounds different, but really it's the same as Hawaiian or Manukyan or Rotongan or New Zealand Maori. Tahiti is the oldest settled place, and the language has kind of rotted away there. Nowadays, the Tahitian has lost the strong, harsh sounds of the old lingo, the K and the Ng. In place of them, there is simply a catch between two vowels. If you know Rotongan and understand the system of change, you can get on all right in Tahiti. 
Take our word alagangi, to play a musical instrument. Tangi means whale or weep. Aka is the old causative prefix. The combination means cause to weep. Now let's figure that word out in Tahitian. First, we've got to take out the K and the ng. That leaves a bad start. It doesn't sound good. So the Tahitians stick on an F at the beginning. That's all there is to it. Fatahi is the word. It makes me laugh to think of when I first came down here. I was working in Tahiti, and when I came home in the evening, my girl would look up from her sewing and sing out, O'Reilly! For the love of Mike, I tell her, don't you know my name yet? It's Riley, not O'Reilly. Finally I caught on. I'd been fooled on the same proposition as Cook and all the rest of them. You remember they called the island Otahiti? That O is simply a special form of the verb used before personal pronouns and proper names. The old navigators, when their canoes came out to meet them, pointed to the land and asked its name. Otahiti, said the natives. It is Tahiti. My girl didn't mean to call me O'Reilly at all. She was simply saying, It's Riley. A serious white man, particularly when he is able to recruit and handle native labor, is always in demand in the islands. It was not long before Riley's talents were recognized. Now he is manager and part owner of an entire atoll. I have listened with a great deal of interest to his accounts of life there. Every year, at about Christmas time, a schooner comes to load his copra and take his boys back to their respective islands. Not a soul is left on the atoll. Riley boards the schooner with his wife and takes passage to Papiti for a couple of months of civilization. When the time is up, he makes a tour of the cook group to recruit twenty or thirty boys for the new season, and is landed on his island with a nine-month supply of medicine, provisions, and reading matter. He is the only white man on the atoll. One would suppose such a life deadly monotonous and lonely. But just now he is pining to get back. It is really the pleasantest of lives, he says. Enough routine in keeping the men properly at work, superb fishing when one desires a touch of sport, plenty of time to read and think, the healthiest climate in the world, and a bit of trouble now and then to give the spice a true Irishman needs. Riley is a man of medium size, with thick brown hair and eyes of Celtic dark blue perpetually sparkling with humor. I have never seen a stronger or more active man of his weight. In all his atoll he spends an hour every day in exercise, running, jumping, working with dumbbells and Indian clubs. From head to foot he is burnt a deep, ruddy brown, a full shade darker than the tint of his native wife. Sometimes, he says, he works himself into such a pink of condition that he aches to pick a fight with the first comer but I fancy he finds trouble enough to satisfy another man. Once a huge Selman fellow from the Gambier group attempted to spear him, and Riley called all of his men in from their work, appointed the foreman referee, and beat the 220-pound native, fierce and lithe, and strong as a tiger, slowly and scientifically to a pulp. On another occasion, a half-savage boy from a far-off island of the southern Pabundas took a grudge against the manager and bided his time with the cunning of a wild animal. The chance came one afternoon when Riley was asleep in the shade behind his house. 
The Palmotan stole up with a club and put him still sounder asleep with a blow on the head that laid his scalp open and nearly fractured his skull. Half a dozen kicks from the ball of a toughened foot stove in the ribs on one side of his chest. With that the native left his victim, very likely thinking him dead. Riley's wife, from whom I got the story, was asleep in the house at the time. Toward evening she went to look for her husband, and found him stretched out, bloody and unconscious, on the sand, in spite of her agitation. Her kind are not much use in a crisis. She managed to get him to the house and revive him. Riley's first act was to drink half a tumbler of whiskey, his second to send for the foreman. The Pomotan boy had disappeared, overcome by forebodings of evil. He had taken canoe and paddled off to hide himself on an uncleared islet across the lagoon. Riley gave the foreman careful instructions. Early in the morning he was to take all the boys and spend the day, if necessary, in running down the fugitive who, under no circumstances, was to be injured or roughly handled. They brought the boy in at noon, deathly afraid at first, sullen and revived, when he learned his punishment was no worse than to stand up to the manager before the assembled plantation hands. It must have been a grievous affair. Tatuna could scarcely describe it without tears. Riley was still sick and dizzy. His ribs were taped so tightly that he could breathe with only half his lungs, and a two-inch strip of plaster covered the wound on his head. The Pomotan was fresh and unhurt. He outweighed his antagonist by twenty pounds, and fought with confidence and bitterness. The Kanaka is certainly among the strongest men of the world, a formidable adversary in a rough-and-tumble fight. It went badly with Riley for a time. The boy nearly threw him, and a blow on his broken ribs almost made him faint. But in the end, maddened by pain and the thought of the treacherous attack, he got his man down and might have killed him if the foreman and half a dozen others had not intervened. Riley's Island is a true atoll a broad lagoon enclosed by an oval sweep of reef, along which are scattered islets of varying size. Many people must have lived on it in the past. Everywhere there are traces of man's occupation. A dozen inhabitants were there within the memory of living men, but the dead outnumbered the living too heavily. The place became unbearable to them, and in the end a schooner took them away. The outlying Cluck Islands are places full of interest. I determined, when I began this letter, to give you a real account of Makoi, the island itself, its people, the number of tons of copra produced annually, and other enlightening information. But somehow, when one begins to write of this part of the world, it seems a hopeless task to stick to a train of facts. There are too many diverging lines of fancy, too many intangible stimuli to thought, stirring to the imagination. Our landing at Makae was a ticklish business. Like Manginia, Mitero, and Etu, this island is of mixed volcanic and raised coral origin, the pinnacle of a submerged peak, ringed with millions of tons of coral, and without any lagoon worthy of the name. The polyps have built a sort of platform around the island low in shore and highest, as it seems usually the case, just before it drops off into the sea. Branching across the outer ridge, the surf fills a narrow belt of shallows between it and the shore. 
The result is a miniature edition of a lagoon, a place of rocky pools where children wade knee-deep on the lookout for crayfish and baby octopus. On the outer edge of the reef is steep, too, dropping off almost at the perpendicular. It is difficult to realize, when one has been brought up on the friendly coast of America, that if a boat capsizes off these reefs, one must swim offshore and wait to be picked up, that it is wiser to chance the sharks than to attempt a landing in the surf, for the sea is breaking along the summit of a sunken cliff, jagged and sharp as broken glass, poisonous as the venom of a snake. They came out to us in a whaleboat. Riley, the supercargo, and I were the first to go ashore. As we pulled away from the schooner, a high-pitched argument began. One of the principal men of the island had come out as a passenger and was sitting beside me. He insisted that as they had got off safely from the boat passage, it was best to return the same way. The boat steerer disagreed. It was all very well to put out from the passage with a score of men to hold the boat until the moment came, and launch her out head-on to the breakers. But now the situation was different. The passage was narrow. It must be entered just so, and a mishap might have unpleasant consequences in such a surf. The steerman had the best of it. He took us a quarter of a mile beyond the passage, and let his men rest on their oars off a place where the reef seemed a little lower than elsewhere. Each time we swung up to the crest of a swell, I got a look at the surf, and the prospect was not reassuring. Once or twice, as the backwash poured off in a frothy cascade, I caught a glimpse of the coral, reddish-black, jagged, and forbidding. Little by little we drew near the land until the boat lay just where the waves began to tower for the final rush. The oarsman backed water gently. The boat-steerer turned his head nervously, this way and that, glancing at the reef ahead and at the rearing water behind. I thought of a day many years before when my father had taken me for a first experience of the chutes, and our little boat seemed to pause for an instant at the summit of the tower before it tilted forward and flew down the steep slope to the water, infinitely far off and below. The feeling was the same, fear mingling with delight and almost painful exhilaration. All of us, saving the watchful eye in the stern, were waiting for a signal which would make the oarsmen leap into activity. The passengers clenched their teeth and gripped the rail. Suddenly came a harsh shout. Six oars struck the water at once. A whaleboat gathered way. A big sea rose behind us, lifted us gently on its back, and swept us toward the reef. Next moment I saw we had started a breath too late. We were going like the wind, it was true but not tilted forward on the crest as we should have been. The wave was gradually passing beneath us. Riley glanced at me and shook his head with a humorous turn-down of the mouth. It was too late to stop. The men were pulling desperately, their long oars bending at every stroke. When the sea broke, we were slipping down into the trough behind. As we passed over the edge of the reef, the wave was beginning its backward wash. There were shouts. I found myself up to my waist, in a foaming rush of water, struggling with might and main to keep my footing and hold the boat from slipping off into the sea. We stopped her just on the brink. Her keel grated on the coral. Another sea was coming at us, towering high above our heads. 
Riley, the supercargo, and I leaped aboard in response to a sharp command. The boys held her stern to the last. As they scrambled over the sides, the sea caught us, half swamping the boat and lifting her stern high in the air. She tilted widely as her bow crashed on the coral, but a rare piece of luck saved her from turning broadside on. Next moment we were over the reef and gliding smoothly into the shallow water beyond. As I drew a long, satisfying breath, I heard Riley chuckle. "'I think I'll get a job diving for shell,' he remarked. "'I'll swear I haven't breathed for a good three minutes.' When we stood on the beach, a dozen men came forward, smiling, to greet their friend Ryby. With a decently pronounceable name from the native standpoint, Riley has got off easily. I never tire of wondering what these people will call a white man. They seem to prefer the surname if it can be pronounced. If not, they try the given name, and Charlie becomes Terry or Johnny Tioni. If this fails, or they take a dislike to one, the fun begins. I have a friend who, unless he leaves the islands, will be called salt pork all his life, and I know another man, a second-rate colonial of the intolerant kind, who goes blissfully about his business all unaware that hundreds of people know him by no other name than Pig Dung. No doubt you have noticed another thing down here, the deceptive simplicity of address. In these eastern islands the humblest speaks to the most powerful without any title of respect, with nothing corresponding to our Mr. or Sir. At first one is inclined to believe that there is the beautiful and ideal democracy, the realization of the communist dream, and there are other things which lead to the same conclusion. Servants, for one example, are treated with extraordinary consideration and kindness. When the feast is over, the mistress of the household is apt as not to dance with the man who feeds her pigs, or the head of the family to take the arm of the girl who has been waiting on his guests. The truth is that this impression of equality is false. There are not many places in the world where a more rigid social order exists, not of caste, but of classes. In the thousand or fifteen hundred years, that they have inhabited the islands. The Polynesians have worked out a system of human relationships nearer their ultimate, perhaps, than our own idealist would have us believe. Wealth counts for little, birth for everything. It is useless for an islander to think of raising himself in a social way, where he is born or dies, and his children after him. On the other hand, except for the abstract pleasure of position, there is little to make the small man envious of the great. He eats the same food, his dress is the same, he works as little or as much, and the relations between the two are of the pleasantest. There is a really charming lack of ostentation on these islands, where everything is known about everyone, and it is useless to pretend to be what one is not. That is at the root of it all. Here is one place in the world, at least, where every man is sure of himself. We were strolling up to the path between the canoe-houses when Riley stopped me. Come and have a look, he said. This is the only island I know of where you can see an old-fashioned double canoe. There were two of them in the shed we entered, under a roof, a battered galvanized iron, long, graceful hulls fashioned from the trunks of trees, joined in pairs by timbers of ironwood laid across the gunnels, 
and lashed down with sennet. They were beautifully finished, scraped smooth and decorated with carving. In these craft, my companions told me, the men of Maki still voyaged to Aitu and Minoto, as they had done for generations before Cook sailed through the group. There is an ancient feud between Manaki and Aitu. It is curious how hard such grudges die. The men of Aitu were the most warlike of all the Cook Islanders. Even in these times of traders and schools of missionaries, no firearms are allowed on the island. Time after time, in the old days, they raided Maki, stealing at by night upon the sleeping villages, entering each house to feel the heads of sleepers. When they felt the large head of a warrior, they seized his throat and killed him without noise. The children and women, the small heads and the heads with long hair, were taken back alive to Aitu. Terrible scenes have been enacted under the old ironwoods of Maki, when the raiders, maddened with the heat of killing, danced in the firelight about the opened ovens and gorged on the bodies of the slain, for the Cook Islanders, excepting perhaps the people of Aitu Taki, were cannibals, as fierce as the Maoris of New Zealand, or the tawny savages of the Marquise. Why should Atutaki have bred a gentler and finer people? The group is not widely scattered as islands go. There must have been fighting and intermarriages for ages past. Yet any man who has been here long can tell you at a glance from which island a native hails. Even after my few weeks, I am beginning to have an eye for the differences. The Mangane is typically the most distinct recognizable at once by his dark skin, his wide, ugly mouth, his uncouth and savage manner. The full-blooded Rorotongan, who will soon be a rarity, is another type, handsome in a square-cut, lionly way, with less energy and far more dignity of presence. The people of Atutaki are different still, fair as the average Tahitian, and pleasing in features and manner. I have seen girls from that island who would be called beautiful in any country. These differences are not easy to account for, it seems to me, when one considers that the islanders are all of one race, tracing their ancestry back to common sources and speaking a common tongue. The trader, a friend of Riley's, took us to his house for lunch. The day was Sunday, and a feast was already preparing, so we were spared the vocal agonies of the pig. Times must be changing. I have seen very few traders of the gin-drinking type one expects to find in the South Seas. Nowadays they seem to be rather quiet, reflective men, who like to read and play their phonographs in the evening, and drink excellent whiskey with soda from a sparkling bottle. This one was no exception. I found him full of intelligence and a dreamy philosophy which kept him content in this forgotten corner of the world. He was young and English. There were cricket bats and blazers in his living room, and shelves filled with the kind of books one can read over and over again. He was pessimistic over Riley's chances of getting men. The people of Maki were drawing lazier each year, he said, and seemed to get along with less and less of the European things for which at one time they had worked. As for copra, they no longer bothered much with it. The nuts were left to sprout under the palms. The taro patches were running down, the coffee and breadfruit dropped off the trees unpicked. The oranges, which brought a good price when a vessel came to take them off, were allowed to drop and rot. 
As we sat smoking after lunch, a native boy came in with a vague air of conspiracy to hold a whispered conversation with Riley. When he had gone, the American turned to our host and winked at me. "'There's a beer tub going full blast out in the bush,' he said. "'I think I'll drop in on them and see if I can pick up a man or two. "'You'd better come along. "'Liquor is prohibited to the natives throughout the Cook Islands. "'Even the white man must buy it from the government "'in quantities regulated by the judgment of the official in charge. "'The manufacture of anything alcoholic is forbidden.' but this latter law is administered with a certain degree of tolerance. Fortunately for everyone concerned, the art of making palm toddy has never been introduced. When the Cook Islander feels the need of mild exhilaration, he takes to the bush and brews a beverage known as orange beer. The ingredients are sugar, orange juice, and yeast. The recipe would prove popular, I fancy, in our own orange-growing states. The story goes that when the Cook Island boys went overseas to war, they found a great drought prevailing in their eastern field of action. Palestine, I think it was. But there were oranges in plenty, and these untutored islanders soon showed the Tommies a trick that brought them together like brothers. I have tasted orange beer at all stages, even the rare old vintage stuff, bottled two or three months before and found it not at all difficult to take. There are worse varieties of tipple, though this one is apt to lead to fighting, and leaves its too enthusiastic devotee with a headache of unusual severity. We found fifteen or twenty men assembled under an old utu tree. A dance ended as we drew near, and the cup was being passed. Two five-gallon kerosene tins, with the top cut off and filled with the bright yellow beer stood in the center of the group. Women are never present on these occasions, which corresponds in a way to Saturday evenings in a club at home, a sort of rude ceremonial, a relic perhaps of kava drinking days, is observed around the beer-tub. The oldest man present, armed with a heavy stick, is appointed guardian of the peace, to see that decency and order are preserved. The natives realize, no doubt, that any serious disturbance might put an end to their fun. The single cup is filled and passed to each guest in turn. He must empty it without taking breath. After every round, one of the drinkers is expected to rise and entertain the company with a dance or song. Riley was welcomed with shouts. He was in a gay mood, and when we had our turns at the cup, he stripped off his tunic for a dance. He is a famous dancer unhampered by the native conventions, he went through the figures of Hiera, Oya, and Ura, first the man's part, then the woman's, while the men of Maki clapped their hands rhythmically and choked with laughter. No wonder Riley gets on with the people. There is not an ounce of self-consciousness in him. He enters into a bit of fun with the good-natured abandon of a child. As for dancing, he is wonderful. Every posture was there, every twist and wiggle and flutter of the hands, what old Bly called, with delightful, righteous gusto, the wanton gestures of the Hebrea. Riley had told his friends on the beach that he was on the lookout for labor. By this time, probably the whole island knew he was on his way to the atoll and that he needed men. Before we took leave of the drinkers, three of them had agreed to go with my companion. 
The sea was calmer now, and since Riley's wife was on the schooner, we decided to go aboard for dinner. Four more recruits were waiting by the canoe houses to sign on. It was odd to see their response to the Irishman's casual offer when half the planters of the group declare that labor is unobtainable. The whaleboat was waiting in the passage. It was evening. The wind had dropped. The sky overhead was darkening. Out to the west the sun had set behind banks of white cloud rimmed with gold. The oarsmen took their places. Friendly hands shot us out on a lull between two breakers. We passed the surf and pulled offshore toward where the schooner was riding an easy swell, her lights beginning to twinkle in the dusk. End of chapter 5